0: The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Let's turn to Isaiah 57, please. Our scripture reading is going to be in Isaiah 57. The righteous perishes, and no man takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away, while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. But come here, you sons of the sorceress, you offspring of the adulterer and the harlot. Whom do you ridicule? Against whom do you make a wide mouth and stick out the tongue? Are you not children of transgression, offspring of falsehood? Inflaming yourselves with gods under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys under the cleft of the rocks, among the smooth stones of the stream is your portion. They, they are your lot. Even to them you have poured a drink offering. You have offered a grain offering. Should I receive comfort in these? On a lofty and high mountain you have set your bed. Even there you went up to offer sacrifice, also behind the doors and their posts, you have set up your remembrance, for you have uncovered yourself to those other than me and have gone up to them. You have enlarged your bed and made a covenant with them. You have loved their bed when you saw their nudity. You went up to the king with ointment and increased your perfumes. You sent your messengers far off even and even descended the Sheol. You were wearied in the length of your way, yet you did not say there is no hope. You have found the life of your hand. Therefore, you were not grieved. And of whom have you been afraid or feared that you have lied and not remembered me, nor take your heart? Is it not because I have held my peace from of old that you do not fear me? I would declare your righteousness and your works, for they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you, but the wind will carry them all away. A breath will take them, but he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And one shall say, Heap it up, heap it up, prepare the way, take the stumbling block out of the way of my people. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. For I will not contend forever nor will I always be angry for the spirit would fall before me and the souls which I have made for the iniquity of his covetousness. I was angry and struck him. I hid and was angry and he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will also lead him and restore comforts to him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips, peace, Peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. That is so true. All right. Well, the children's program is uh, suspended for the summer, it being June now already, so... Uh, the young people will stay here, and we'll turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, and I encourage you all to follow along in your copy of God's Word, young and older alike. Matthew chapter number 6. Uh, by the way, I uh, have a couple things also on my mind. Does anybody have any Bible questions tonight? just pops to mind. I was wondering that question. For you if you have something. I also was, uh, while you're thinking of that, speaking in John chapter 17, we never really finished that. I looked at uh, one-third of that prayer of our Lord and did not look at the, the first, actually the first and second parts. We kind of glossed over and went to the third part, but uh, that's a powerful example of prayer as we looked at prayer with Matthew uh, chapter 6 and uh, the uh, Lord's instruction on prayer. The Lord gives a, that great example of the high priestly prayer. Uh, there in 17, praying for himself, praying for his disciples, and also praying for those who would come after uh, them and believe on basis of their word and not not those who had seen uh, the Lord Christ himself. That's in uh, 17. And the main request was, uh, well, there's three, really, three main requests. The Lord asks in the verse, first five verses that, Lord, Father, would you glorify me together with yourself? And then he asks the Father to keep those disciples whom he had brought to the Father through his earthly ministry, all except, of course, the son of perdition. He was not to be kept. He was lost, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. But the Lord Jesus is, rem- is being removed from the earth. He will not be in direct contact with them. Satan will desire to sift Peter as wheat, uh, he will. Peter himself will deny the Lord, and so God is asked by our Lord Jesus to keep these disciples and protect them in his absence. And, and God kept good on that promise, made good on that uh, prayer request, I should say, rather, and promised to keep them. And then in the last segment of the chapter, the Lord prays for the, well, a couple of things, really the, the unity of believers and also that they would come to be with Christ, where he is and behold Christ's glory in uh, the heavenly place and so those were the requests that the Lord prayed. We trust all of those have been and are being answered because they came from the Lord in perfect harmony with the will of God and we looked at them thus as an example for us uh, as far as our prayers are concerned. So that was still a little bit on my mind but I'm not, not sure if we're going to get back there anytime soon. Yes, sir? Okay. Okay. Loving your enemy, that topic, um, I seem to recall uh, us most recently speaking about that in Matthew 5, I want to say verse 43. Yeah, you, uh, then uh, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And it was on that basis that I sealed the understanding of the interpretation of this section that the Lord is taking false, uh, the false approach of the Pharisees to the Old Testament law and He is correcting them. He is showing what the real, uh, real meaning of the law is. He's not saying, you know, the, the law of Moses says X, but I'm going to undo that. No, he's really saying you people have twisted the law of Moses into saying or meaning just X, and I'm going to show you what it really means. Okay. So we did talk about loving our our enemies that way. So what what was your question relative to that? Yes. Yes, that's correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Uh, So the question that that is raised now is, what exactly is the the verb love? Is there any nuance there that helps us with the inherent difficulty that we feel in loving our enemies? Yeah, well, we we better be honest, right? Yeah, we we have to be honest. And it is a difficulty when when the Lord tells us to love our enemies. And what I said when we preached in Matthew 5.43 is, You don't have to teach people to hate their enemies. That is a natural response that people have. We see it worldwide over in all the conflicts that occur, individual conflicts, family conflicts, national, international conflicts. People hate their enemies. So uh, in, in order for us to fulfill 544, but I say to you, love your enemies, there really can only be one Usage of that verb that fits, and that would be the divine kind of love, which we would call, you know, in broad Christianity, they would throw out this word agape love, referring to the verb, um, this kind of love seeks the best, seeks the need of the person loved. It's not a um, it's not a friendship love, it's not a marital intimacy kind of love. It's got to be this, this kind of divine love that our Lord is talking about. And We see it exampled, and we know it's that type of love because of several examples. Number one, the Lord Jesus being hammered to the cross and suspended there says, Father, forgive them. That love that he's, ex- ex- he's, he's expressing love, and that love that's expressed is a forgiving love. It's, it's expressing what is needed for them. Okay, this isn't a friendship. This isn't a, you know, oh, it's okay, you no know, problem kind of thing. It's not overlooking what they're doing, it's actually saying, forgive them. Stephen had a similar situation. I think that concern for those people's souls mixed the realization or the, the true recognition that they were sinning by what they were doing, but they were also, in some sense, blind to what they were doing and worthy of some kind of compassion because of that blindness. And so we can love our enemies because they are lost. They are lost and they need uh, the kindness of God if they are to be saved. And so we have that concern and compassion for them. We, we uh, looked at a number of examples in the Old Testament law regarding how to treat strangers. In fact, Brother James went from that and spoke on that subject, I think it was, what was it, last Sunday morning, Sunday school, and last Saturday, on the subject of loving strangers. Um, and we saw how that the Israelites were to treat their neighbors Even the neighbor of their enemy, say the ox of their enemy is going along, they're supposed to kindly treat them and and get that back to that person. Uh, Because this is a reflection of the character of God. God loved us while we were still his enemies. So uh, it's that, I think helps us with the difficulty, the if we're honest difficulty about loving our enemies, because we can see if we're well-informed in Scripture, we can see in God a disposition to love sinners, to love His enemies, at the same time that His justice demands holiness and righteous punishment for their sin. So, there is in God this twofold aspect of love for enemies, but on a human level, should they refuse to be reconciled to God, they must, despite his concern or compassion, we could say, if we express love that way, which I think we can, despite that concern for them, he has to and is satisfied by sending them to eternal punishment for their sins so at the one and same time he can love his enemies and yet he can justly punish them for their sin so i know this is still difficult it's still difficult yeah and i i'm not i'm not either i mean the practical reality is if somebody is persecuting you it is very difficult to have any kindly feelings toward them, isn't it? It is that's right. but that's sin that's sin working within us if it's if it's turning us to vengeance and uh, malice uh, towards that person, we have to recognize the the other side of this the, the equation that that person is lost, that person may be. Under orders from somebody else, they have to do it under the threat of their life or something, what, you know, the, the, the evil that they're doing to us. I mean, the Roman soldiers had to obey orders. They just had to do what they're told. Even though they were culpable for what they were doing, they still uh, were worthy of the, the forgiving love of Jesus and uh, his prayer that way. So let me ask John to uh, comment here. He has something. Yeah, so uh, the, John's point is if we love our enemies and follow this faithfully, at the end of the day, they're still our enemies. And I I would agree with that. Our, our uh, disposition toward them may do nothing to change their disposition toward us and the stark reality that they are opposed to us. So we may love, you know, the pastors in, in uh, Alberta, Canada, or different places around Canada who are being imprisoned because they're trying to open their churches to simply worship may have some level a, a, a true biblical compassion for people who are so lost that they think they're doing a helpful thing by closing churches. But at the end of every day when they lay down their head in their prison cell, they are... Going to say and be able to say, they're still our enemies. They're still trying to do us harm. And we're still concerned for their souls, but they're still in opposition to us. And in reality, in another part of our souls, we are in opposition to them because we are doing what's right. We can stand with those people. And look, I'm getting off on a rabbit trail, but. Perish the broad evangelical thought that those pastors up there in Canada are not being persecuted. That's what people are saying. You don't believe me? <laughs> I'm telling the truth. There are evangelicals today who say, wow, they deserve what they're getting. They didn't obey the orders of the, of the government. No, my friends, <laughs> that is foolishness. To say and to think that is foolishness. Okay, Persecution Is happening to those people. I mean, their churches are being locked and closed, padlocked, chained, chain link fences, pastors put in jail because they want to meet for a virus that doesn't even kill 1% of its victims. Okay, let's be real. Let's be real, folks. Okay, if you don't want to go to church, you don't have to go to church. We've had that policy standing here for a year. Right, each to each his own, everybody has to make their own decision. They're accountable for their decisions, and those who are going to stay away, uh, either in this church or any other church for long periods of time, they're going to have probably a degradation in their spiritual vitality. It just seems inevitable to me, but that is persecution there in that church, and i don't I don't take that lightly. We on the American side of the border should not take that lightly. And if I were in leadership in the United States, I would come down hard on Canadian partners and say, look, you need to back off of those people and let them worship. That is a fundamental human right. Okay? Being on Twitter is not a, a fundamental human right, like they're trying to say in this last couple of days. Worshiping God is not only a fundamental human right, it's commanded by God. You want to stand in God's way? So, yes, we recognize those people are enemies. But you know what? Who's going to take care of those enemies? The pastor's not going to be able to do anything. What's he going to do, shoot his way out of jail? I mean, he's just a little guy, you know, up against Goliath. He's going to have to take the punishment that is due, you know, that is given to them as felt by the authorities in Canada. But they are still the enemies, and God will see to it, I I fear to be those people. When they stand before the judgment seat, That they destroy the church of God, like I said this morning. They're going to have something to answer for. But it's not our place. I guess here's the other thing that sometimes gets into this. People say, well, if you have to love your enemies, then I'm a pacifist, and I just treat everybody like my friend. This is not a verse for a national government to follow. Okay, If there's a, a malefactor, if there's an evildoer, the responsibility of the government is to be God's instrument to execute wrath on that person. Individually, the judge who, who sits on the bench and makes the decision may have a loving disposition and be caring towards that person and compassionate, but at the end of the day, he's going to have to say, look, you have been in opposition to the state of Michigan or the federal, you know, the, the people of the United States of America. You've been a terrorist or a murderer or whatever, and you're going to have to pay the penalty because you were acting as an enemy. So I would say our disposition toward them doesn't change their enemy combatant status, if you will. So we we have that tension. We recognize that compassionately but we also recognize justice has to be served and in our right place uh vigilante justice is not the answer governmental justice is the answer and and where government fails to accomplish that then the righteous really groan don't they when evil goes on unchecked unchecked and think you can see many examples of this i mean think of people who support far left wing causes or not so far left i guess the whole left is pretty far these days but abortion for example people who support abortion there are those that are radical wicked evil people and then there are those who are like kind of can i just say ignorant about it and are like yeah I mean, I guess that's what the Democrats say, and that's what I voted for all my life. It must be okay, um, you know. There's different levels of 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 that, and 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 all those people, we can express a level of concern for. I mean, listen. Ultimately, you don't want to see them receive eternal punishment, do you? I mean, if yes, you do. In a sense, if they're recalcitrant and they refuse to bow the knee, then you say, yes, that's, that is the correct punishment for them. That's the answer. But on a human level, you wouldn't say that you want to see your family members, as evil as they may be, going to hell for all eternity. That's what love is, that, that kind of compassion. It's not you know, a drooly kind of warm, fuzzy feeling about people who are your enemies. So that is a difficult, that is a difficult teaching, but it runs right up against our human nature, which is a sinful nature, isn't it? Yes, the sin nature is so endemic; it's so built into us that we have a really tough time sometimes of of extricating ourselves from that. We've seen some great examples of that, you know, uh, with MacArthur's ministry and and others that have stood firm and said, we're going to meet as churches, you know, despite what the government says, and they say, you know, they make wonderful statements. Look, we're not trying to be rebellious. We're not trying to be insubordinate, but we have a higher calling. We have a higher law. We have to obey God rather than men, so we humbly submit that we're going to do that, and the authorities are going to do what they have to do. That shows a great attitude, a great attitude, all right. Any follow ups to that or other questions? Yes, sir. Go ahead. Hmm. Because if you think a the page that you earlier, Stephen was very terse and direct about the wickedness of his slayers. You stiff necked people. Yeah. That's right. But it's interesting that the Lord inspired me to use him, because mm-hmm. of Stephen, who also uh, remarked as the Lord did before he saw the gates of heaven opened. It, yeah. Which is a precious moment. Yeah. Speaking of Stephen in chapter seven of Acts. Yeah. So that was a good point to make because that exemplifies the duality of the realism of their offense. Yes. Right. Sometimes I think might that, think, that you, then I'm going to have to say that what you did No, in fact, uh, we know that as parents. Uh, so Thurman is suggesting that sometimes we think that love has this kind of sappy idea to it that if we love our enemy, that that means we have to excuse what they have done. But as a parent or as a pastor, Sometimes you have to speak to a child or a church member and say look you are doing wrong and you have to receive the consequences of that wrong in a case, extreme case like you know church discipline uh, here or for parents you know for young children you know i love you but you're still getting a spanking well i mean that's that, that those two things are completely compatible Completely compatible. they don't you don't just say love and and wash out everything bad. Now unfortunately in to society today, love is seen as as something that does wash away all that, just forget all that bad and there's no consequence to it. so very interesting. All right, back to Matthew chapter six, starting in verse nineteen, please. the apostle uh, Matthew here recording for us the words of the Lord says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break through and steal, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let me address this a little bit out of order from how my notes are, but you'll see the logic of it here in a moment. There are are four problems with earthly treasures, the Lord says. And listen, this does not include, uh, this does not only mean money, okay? People's treasures are not necessarily money. They may be other things. They may be uh, hobbies. They may be objects. They may be mementos. They may be houses, lands, cars, (laughs) What's that? Boats. I never got into that whole thing with boats. It does has no attraction to me whatsoever. But yes, it could be that. Um, Several problems with riches in this text. Number one, and probably the worst, look at verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. That's the first problem. They're earthly. They're worldly, they're earthly bound, they're not heavenly. They indicate a misplaced priority structure. That's the point. That's really the main thing. They're earthly treasures. Then he says the second problem with these earthly treasures is that moths eat them. So I, I expanded that a little bit just by way of application, and I said bugs eat Organic things like cloth here. Moths eat clothing, put holes in them or however they do that. Third problem with earthly treasure. Not only are they earthly, moths destroy them, but also rust. Rust destroys them. Oxidation ruins the finish of a metal and eventually eats it away entirely. Now, it's not, you know, it's not gone, gone. It's just now in a form that doesn't look like what it did before. You know, our poor cars, (laughs) you know, why do they rust? And you can study the chemistry of the rusting process, and it's fascinating but depressing at the same time, (laughs) you know, uh, what's going on there and why it happens kind of, it seems, spontaneously because of the, the energy levels and the second law and all of that sort of stuff, oxidation. And number four... The fourth problem with earthly treasures, verse 19, thieves break in and steal them. Thieves break in. You you, you have to use more of your treasure to buy safes and locks and protective equipment and security cameras and whatever else in order to secure the belongings that you're concerned about. Four problems with earthly treasure. In some, buildings become run down, cars rust, humidity and mold ruins precious documents and paintings, bugs ruin clothing, fires burn up important things, and and you cannot take any of this out of this life with you. There are several severe problems with earthly treasures. But then there is the security of heavenly treasures. Look at verse number 20. But... There's the contrast. There's two options here, really, two, an alternative. You can either lay out for yourselves treasures on earth or alternatively, treasures in heaven. Gentlemen who were at men's prayer yesterday, perk up your ears because we talked about alternative uh, relationship between thoughts or clauses. Here is one. The security of heavenly treasures. First of all, there are no bugs to destroy things in heaven. I'm not even really specifying what the nature of heavenly treasures are, but we know that the bugs aren't a problem because the Lord says, neither moth nor rust destroys now I don't know if this means there are no bugs in heaven or if there are no destructive bugs in heaven. I'll let you leave you to that thought, okay um, no rust rust will not destroy. In this location, and the sort of treasures that these are, there's no oxidation process there. I don't know if this means there's no oxygen. Or there, have you ever thought of that? Is there oxygen in heaven? I don't know. Or if there's no second law of thermodynamics. We do know that. Yeah, well, I expect that since Jesus was here and he seems like he was probably breathing after his resurrection. There's probably some breathing process there it's a, you know, because that's not, a, that's not a consequence of sin, is it? God breathed into Adam this life principle and he began to breathe. His chest began to move up and down and air entered and exited and the process of oxygen and carbon dioxide exchange began to happen and his life was breathed into him. That was before the fall. There's no problem of, of of that with with the fall. so but anyway, there'll be no bad oxidation, no no oxidation like that. Then there will be no thieves. The last do you know who the last thief will be? The one who comes as a thief in the night, right? When the Lord Jesus returns, he's one coming like a thief. after that. Real thieves, now I'm talking about, just using a play on words here, real thieves will not be able to get away with their evil work, and God's people will be secure. You know, the Lord is the king of kings. Satan is the thief of thieves. John chapter 10 says he doesn't delight in anything but to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's his business, that's his line of work. We hate that line of work. That line of work is destructive. The thief of thieves is Satan, and he will be banished and punished forever and will not be able to induce others to their thieving ways in the heavenly place. So the security of heavenly treasure, bugs don't eat it, rust doesn't uh, degrade it, thieves don't steal it, and then finally such treasures are in fact heavenly in their nature and thus indicate that your heart is in the right place. In other words, when we say like verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, it doesn't mean there in location, right? It means there in values, there in priorities. Your heart is in heaven even though it's not in heaven. Your desires are heavenly, even though you're bound to the earth right now in this life. Your values, priorities, your center of worship is in heaven instead of on the earth with its worldly system of values and its worldly system of worship. So, the danger of earthly treasures, the security of heavenly treasures, that's what our Lord is pointing out. And really the principle here is wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also, as our Lord says in verse 21. That's the point that he's trying to get across. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, where is our priority? Where is our delight? Where is our joy? Where are our values centered? Are we concerned more about things on the earth or things in heaven? Two possible life paths are considered here in these verses from 19 through 34. You have the godly path and you have the ungodly path. The ungodly path is those who lay up for themselves treasures on earth. The godly path are those who lay up for themselves treasures in heaven. The ungodly path is that which, in verse 20. uh, 22 and 23, is internal darkness. There's the idea of the lamp. Jesus uses a lamp as an illustration, or the eye rather, the eye and the lamp as an illustration of a principle of internal spiritual health. There's either internal darkness on the ungodly path or internal light on the godly path. We'll look at that in more detail uh, another time. In 624, he says, you cannot serve God and riches, God and mammon, as it's called. I really don't like that translation. In English, mammon means nothing. It really should say riches or wealth or something, some, something similar to that. And the principle is no one can serve two masters. That's what he says explicitly. I mentioned to the guys yesterday, um, you know, you really cannot have two bosses, some of you have had that circumstance at your workplace. I had that uh, maybe once or twice, and to navigate that is a is a sometimes very poor existence because you have this one telling you to do this and this one telling you to do this, and you have to reconcile those two things or you don 't have time to do both or you can 't do them by the same deadline or or whatever it is. You cannot serve two masters. There has to be some kind of coordination between them. And there's not any coordination between God and the world. Friendship with the world is enmity with God and and the reverse. So you cannot serve two things. You either decide you're going to serve the things of this world or serve God. Okay. Then the Lord talks in verses 25 to 34 about what you worry about. This also shows your priority structure. Do not worry about your life what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear, or your, your, your uh, tomorrow, the next day. Okay, So life, eat, drink, clothing, and tomorrow. Those five things. And what do we worry about? All of those things, don't we? I, we we've always talked about, listen, I'm a human. I know just exactly what you experience, and I experience the same thing. But worry worry is like borrowing trouble from something, some future time that you don't even know it's going to happen. I spoke to someone yesterday, a brother, who was very troubled about something that probably was not going to happen. But he had his mind convinced that it might, it might happen, and it was worthy for him to really fret about. And you can't do that. You have to stop doing that. You have to stop. So, you know, oftentimes we, we get into speculation mode well, this, and then if that, and then if this, and oh my goodness, look at this. This is really going to be bad. And then tomorrow comes and you realize, oh, that, wasn't, that didn't happen because that didn't happen because that didn't happen, and I shouldn't have worried about it. I should have prayed about it maybe. I should have trusted the Lord about it for sure, but I shouldn't have worried about it. Instead, we're taught by the Lord here to seek first his kingdom and righteousness and all those things would be added to you, life, food, drink, clothing, and tomorrow. You can't worry anyway enough to give yourself any of those things. How is worry going to add to your life? It only subtracts. How is worry going to help tomorrow? You're not there tomorrow Tomorrow yet. How is worry going to give you food or drink or clothing? No, there are other means to, to those things, right? Worry is not going to do it. You maybe get up. You know, off your chair and do something. Use the means that God has given to work, to earn, to achieve those things that are necessary. God knows you have need of those. And Jesus illustrates this with two very appropriate but simple illustrations. Look at the birds. We saw a bird today. I still don't know what kind of bird it is. We've got to look in your bird book, John. A smallest bird, nice gray and white and black cap and a long beak. Think of how God dressed that bird. It doesn't even have to think about it, you know. And we saw some uh, little, I think they were downy woodpeckers or something, very nice little birds. And we have flickers at the house and cardinals and blue jays and robins, of course. And look at how God provides for them, clothes them, provides them. Somehow, one of our boys asked, where, where do they get their water from? Remember that? God gives them their water. You know, they know where to find whatever they need. That's amazing. And then he illustrates it with the flowers of the field. Think of the beautiful flowers that you like. We have some uh, flowers up here in front of the school, peonies. We have eight of them on the stair, you know, lining the staircase, and they recently bloomed very beautiful flowers and we planted them and did some watering, but you know what maintenance we did to them this year? Nothing, and they still flowered, and they still look beautiful, and they still attracted the ants like peonies do. <laughs> Same at our house, we have a plant that's kind of on the border between us and our neighbor, and they, they like the, the ants like those plants. But God clothed them, and they're just plants, just plants. So don't worry about your life your food your drink your tomorrow your clothing because god will take care of that now let me deal with one kind of uh, maybe objection to what our lord has taught us in the laying up treasures portion there in 19 through 21 all that that i just did was basically just kind of overview of the rest of the chapter we'll get to some of the details in the next weeks but i asked the question So if the Lord says, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, does that prohibit me from having a savings account in the bank, just to oversimplify things? I mean, it's stored up money. Is that a problem? Some people have taken it to be a problem. They take a vow of poverty, give everything away. Some people have even ceased to use the normal means of provision and they said, We're living by faith. And then they depend on other people to provide for their food or whatever. You laugh, but that's real. And it's sad because it's not right. It's not right at all. But there's a certain piousness to it. No, we're just trusting the Lord. The Lord's instruction may initially seem it. You're not allowed to save money in your bank or investments for retirement or other needs. If you simplistically read the Lord's instructions to mean that, then you're misreading it. We know this because other portions of Scripture uh, uh, commend the value of frugality and saving. The classic example is that of wise young Joseph who said to the Pharaoh, let someone be appointed to save one-fifth of the produce in the bountiful years so that we will have to live through the years of famine. On a national level, he arranged Egypt to save by taxation 20% of the produce during those seven good years in order to help the nation during the coming uh, seven famine years. And given the time, we don't have time to go read those portions, but I trust your Sunday school memory is good and you've learned those stories well, so you know them. This that he did was not a sinful laying up of treasure on earth. It was setting aside bounty to be used in a time when there would be little provision at all. And we can and should do the same. We should not be living so piously that we give away much of what we have only to rely on others to cover the needs that we later come up with if we had been more careful and more frugal and more, realistic, we would have been able to take care of our own needs. Neither should we live wastefully so that when a famine comes, we have to beg or borrow or go on welfare. We should be prepared during the years of plenty by saving, investing, educating, training, and so on, so as to increase our value and be able to handle the times that may come of difficulty. Now, this is, of course, no guarantee that some calamity won't befall you and you'll be really in problems, and there's where the social safety net and where the church can come to your aid. But just be sure that it's not because of your irresponsibility that that has to occur. That's awfully frustrating for people to have to cover for the irresponsibility or unwillingness, for example, today for people to work. Highly frustrating to see people sitting on the sidelines getting their extra unemployment when they should be getting up and doing some part-time employment, even if it means getting less money. On principle, Christians should be the first to go about doing that because that is the right thing to do. That is the right thing. That's the moral and ethical thing to do. So if saving money aside for such needs is is not equal to laying up treasures on earth. And what does that phrase mean? And by the way, I do encourage people when I do premarital counseling or financial counseling with people that they be very practical and they have a savings account that will cover them for three to six months, minimally, of salary, say, of life needs if there's a case of a difficulty. In their life, they lose a job, they have a health issue or whatever. Then they have three to six months at least of cushion where they can figure out what to do and different arrangements and and all of that sort of thing. But if saving is not prohibited here, then what does the Lord mean? I believe it means a couple of things. Number one, piling up wealth beyond what you will ever need. If you are a multimillionaire, or effectively so, you need to consider your ways. Are you greedy about this? Are you like the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18? Like the foolish rich farmer, you know, Lord, I have all this stuff. I'll I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. Or the fellow who is the rich young ruler who wouldn't let go of his earthly possessions to follow the Lord. That's one way in which this comes to application. Or secondly, treating your possessions with higher care than people or God. Even if you do have vast wealth, you can still be treating things that you own, or I'm sorry, even if you do not have wealth, you can still be treating things that you own as little treasures, your antique car, your property, your collection of whatever knickknacks you have. They're going to be passed down to another person when you die or thrown out if they become obsolete or eventually burned up in the great conflagration that's going to cleanse the earth and prepare for the new heavens and the new earth. Think about that as you think about being a steward of those things. And that's something that I have found helpful too, by the way, is to think of yourself as less an owner, because God really owns everything, doesn't he? And more of a steward of those things that he has given to you. And ultimately, this laying up treasures on earth is an issue of the heart, not of the money or of the amount it's an issue of greed, of priority, ultimately of love and of how you spend your time. There's so many verses in the Bible, and James and 1 Timothy speak of wealth. Hebrews eleven twenty six, 26, they warn against the love of money. Matthew 13, says that riches, remember the parable of the soils, what happened to the one soil that was, that was deceived by riches, it was choked There was no fruit. So riches are deceitful and choke out the Word of God's in one in one's word of God in one's life and make it difficult to enter the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 10, or Mark chapter 10 rather, and other gospels as well have it. The Lord said, you know, it's how hard it is for those that are rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven. He exposes here that's an issue of trust. Those who trust riches have this problem. There are some people who have wealth and are good stewards of it, and that's the issue, stewardship. Instead of wealth of money or riches of money, listen to things that the New Testament extols as we close tonight. The New Testament letters extol riches like the riches of the glory of the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. The riches of the full assurance of understanding, not money. The words of Christ dwelling in you richly, Colossians 3.16. God supplying all of your needs according to His riches in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4.19. God gives us richly all things to enjoy, 1 Timothy 6.17. He talks about the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, Ephesians 1.18. God is rich in mercy Ephesians 2, 4. These are the kinds of riches that we should be concerned about. The riches of God's grace and kindness, Ephesians 1 and 2. The riches of Christ, Ephesians 3, 8. The riches of God's glory, Ephesians three sixteen; The riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, Romans chapter 11 and verse number 33. Those are true riches, not the money of the world. You know how fleeting that money is, by the way? Think about any fiat currency. Tomorrow, your net wealth could be zero in effect because who knows what could happen. But if you attend to the riches of the glorious things of God, those can never be erased. Those exist because God exists, and they will never go away. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the riches of your grace. Thank you for the riches of the glory of the inheritance of the saints and all these things we just mentioned that are treasures in heaven. Help us to have those as our heart focus instead of the things of the earth. Lord, we're so kind of almost in a way we feel sometimes hopelessly bound up in the things of the world and we feel like we're, how, how do I manage or how do I navigate? I have to do things and have things and steward things and and save and live and pay the bills and all of this at the same time, not to be kind of consumed by all of that. I pray that you would help us, that we would follow the instruction of our Lord here, faithfully, in Jesus' name, amen.